This week on Buffett the Gilmore Slayer. Do you think that Gilmore Girls is just a big commercial for the internet for old people? Totally. Welcome to Buffy the Gilmore Slayer. I'm Brian Morris. I'm Stacy Fulo. We're comedians. And a couple. And I've never seen Gilmore Girls, one of Stacy's favorite shows. And I've never seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one of Brian's favorite shows. So we're watching both shows together, all seven seasons, comparing them as we go. And this week we watch season six, episode five of both shows, starting with Gilmore Girls, We've Got Magic to Do. As well as Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Life Serial. I had a question about something in last week's episode. Okay. Did the council know that Buffy was dead? Because Giles goes and talks to the council, and they were, like, hiding it from everyone that she was dead. But you'd think the council would have been like, so how'd that thing go with Glory? The whole reason we got back together with you is to, like, kind of figure that out together. She's still around? Like, is they not calling every day, being like, did Buffy beat Glory? I mean, I'm sure they, I'm sure Giles called the council and was like, Buffy beat Glory. That's all taken care of. Well done, us. Thanks for checking in. But... It's a good question because I don't know if he would have told the council because, I mean, there's so little contact between Buffy and the council. Because he said he went to talk to them probably after he found out she was alive. I don't, I don't know. He went to talk to them at some point after he went back to England. Right. He might have some sort of responsibility to talk to them about Buffy dying if the Slayer lineage was still with Buffy. They've never in the show. Someone just asked us about that. and I, yeah. You've explained to me that it's with Faith now. Yeah. Because Buffy already died once. The show's never really spelled that out. It hasn't. No one's appeared. Right. It hasn't. And I don't know if they explicitly say it. I'm, I do believe that Joss or somebody on the set like says like it's somewhere in like an interview that it's with Faith. I don't know if the show talks about it or not. I want to say season seven might dive into that. But the fact that Buffy dies and no one's like, so there's a new Slayer, right? Yeah. Otherwise, they should just do what I pitched and keep flatlining Slayers. That would be an interesting idea. You always say that. I wonder if that happens. All I said was that would be an interesting idea. Well, it would be. So the show should do it. But I mean, it's also hard to flatline someone. That's dangerous. It is dangerous. I'm talking about the movie Flatliners where they let people have like near-death experiences and then bring it back. But they technically die. Right. But then you get a bunch of hitchhikers and that's it's just true. the whole thing. Magic you know? has consequences. But it's not magic. It's science. Science has no limits. No limits. Uh, season four taught us that there's no consequences to science either. <laughs> <laughs> But also, is Giles still a watcher then? Is he still getting paid even though his Slayer's dead? He got reinstated as a watcher. Yeah, I mean, let's be fair. Lots of watchers do a lot of stuff with no Slayer. So I assume he's still getting paid and he has to like read a book a week or something, report back. I don't know what the watchers do when they're not teaching a Slayer. Yeah, I don't know that anyone involved with the show really thought too much about what the watchers do. Yeah, I mean, you got to assume that they are doing stuff, but I don't know. Well, guys, it is morning. We're doing another morning podcast, so I am groggy as shit. Again, time is nonsense to us now. Who knows? I, I fed Kurt early. I didn't know what was happening. Yeah, that's going to cause chaos all day. He's going to be looking for dinner in like a couple hours now. I was asleep and my arm was like crooked. So like it was like, like you know, kind of like a wing. Like if you like, I don't know, like you put your hand on your hip. So you've got like a, a V shape with your arm. And he like... He didn't fit, but he, like, curled up inside my armhole. <laughs> you didn't share this with me. And then just started licking me nonstop. And I was like, what's happening? What, where are you? <laughs> where was he licking you? On the arm mm. and my hand. Uh, but he did not fit there. Um, anyway, 
We got to talk about these shows. I, but before we go into my, I wanted to talk about something. I read a book for book club called A Court of Thorns and Roses. It was described as a book that's like a little bit like Buffy. Um, kept reading it. Very much not like Buffy at all. At all. In any way. Whatsoever. There's a young girl. There's a young girl and she like is a hunter. We see a little bit of that. We see very little of it. She like hunts maybe two things in the book. It's a book about this woman that gets... Little spoilers here. Let's just say she sort of gets kidnapped by some fairies and taken to like a fairy land. Fairies are big. They're not tiny little tinkerbells, right? No, no. These fairies are, you don't mess with fairies in this in this world. They're like big ass, badass, violent dudes. It's essentially like a more adult version of Beauty and the Beast. That's just what it is. And it wasn't good. And I know some people are going to be like, I loved it so much. That's fine. Good for you. But like, I did not like it at all. And no one in my book club did because it was nonsense. The plot made no sense at all. And the main character, it was like Beauty and the Beast, but the main character can't read. It was almost like they were like, all right, this is 100% Beauty and the Beast. How do we make it different? Well, instead of loving books, she can't even read them. Great. (laughs) It's not Beauty and the Beast. We could sell it. Uh, It was really bad. And maybe you guys love, there's like 100 of these books. Maybe it gets more Buffy by book 74. By 74, it gets more Buffy. It's, It's possible. I do think that there's like people fighting over the main character. And, like, some of them are, like, maybe kind of mean or evil, but they're, like, redeemed. So it's, like, maybe, like, Angel Spike kind of thing for Buffy. But the first book doesn't really have much of that. But also, uh, what's really funny is you texted a friend about my book club reading this, and she said, ooh, that book's about as dirty as yuck can get. What she meant was YA, young adult. (laughs) (laughs) As dirty as you can get. Because she put it in small letters, so it it didn't look like initials. It is as dirty as yuck can get. We didn't know reading this that it was like a steamy book. (laughs) And about like 200 pages in, I was like, is she going to fuck this fairy? (laughs) She fucked that fairy. She did. And it's so gross. The verb they used was like, he sheathed himself into her. I remember it was like, wait, sheathed? That's not a sex term. Let's not use sheathed, please. I gleaned some of this book when we were in the car for our wedding trip recently. I was doing the audiobook. I would keep waking up and I was like, she's still just trying to figure out if she loves this dude. She do. <laughs> I know where this is going. Yeah, you were like this like uh, oracle. You just like go to sleep and then wake up like, oh, she's going to fuck this fairy. Go on. <laughs> it's so obvious. I don't, it, <laughs> nothing changed in the eight hours I was in the car with you. Yeah. Anyway, if you like the book, good for you. I, I There's lots of books I love that other people don't, but I, <laughs> I'm not recommending this book. Do not read the Buffy part and be like, yeah, it is like Buffy. Unless your favorite part of Buffy is the fact that she dates some toxic dudes. Well, some people love that. Yeah. My favorite part of Buffy is when Angel sheathes himself (laughs) into her. That was a good episode. Yeah. Well, before we jump into things, we do have one five-star review. Thank you so much to Allison Dotsdapyra. Thank you. Her five-star review header says, hashtag Team Giles, hashtag Yes, He's a Daddy. Okay. Which is a little topical for this episode. Yeah, because he, she's like six women in this episode. <laughs> He's living with quite a few. <laughs> There's no sheathing, guys. Don't worry. Don't freak out. Don't start sweating. Well, let's get into these episodes, BMO. Yeah. Yes to it. This week we started with Gilmore Girls. Tell us all about We've Got Magic to Do. We've got magic to do. Just for you. <laughs> we can't stop singing that. That and saying... You crushed that girl. You crushed that girl. So this episode is about Rory doing a lot more work with the DAR and Emily and Richard finding out the truth about what happened with Mitch and Huntsberger. And also there's a subplot about Lorelai and Luke having a mini fight that doesn't matter at all. 
At least as far as I can tell. Maybe it'll come back. I can't really remember why this happens, but maybe there's a reason. There's been a fire at the inn again. Oh, my God. Oh, my, oh God. my God. But don't worry. It's just the wall behind the stove. Yeah, it's greasy back there. They got to clean that grease trap. They never do. Michelle says the insurance guys are giving him the runaround. They say that their company doesn't cover businesses like the inn. Later, they tell the same thing to Lorelai, even though she's got the paperwork. Suki later reminds Lorelai that, well, I guess you're going to have to contact your dad because he's the one that set this all up and we need that insurance money. She's all like, all right. She's also worried she's a fire starter. (laughs) Yeah. She's like, am I a fire starter? By the way, the episode opens with her at the diner with Luke. That's where she finds out about the fire. And they had just gone shopping and they accidentally had picked up some other woman's bag and are like going through her stuff. She's got giant panties. There's just like a really funny line where she takes out some like furry slippers and Lorelai's like, oh, she's single. (laughs) That's funny. Luke keeps playing with them while she's on the phone. (laughs) She has big feet. They're setting up, too, that Luke, like, went shopping with her for a bunch of her shit, and all he got was a wallet that he didn't really want. But he was not complaining. That's just kind of setting up he was doing this with her. But that fire is not the only crisis at the moment. The DAR's fundraiser event isn't selling tickets. Nora, the DAR woman who wants to bang the forefathers and is always drinking, is really upset that this is going to make them look bad, and she's also upset that her drink doesn't have any booze in it. Emily's like, because it's punch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she just keeps mentioning it. She's all like, I'm just so upset and I don't have enough booze to have any perspective. Rory's at the meeting and she has some crazy, just absolutely wild ideas for this. Like, what if they use the internet to advertise it? What? What? crazy? It's the D-A-R. They didn't have internet and the revolution. So Rory takes charge of the events. And it's funny because Nora's all like, this woman knows what's going on. She'll do it. Everyone has immediate confidence in Rory because she mentioned she might have some ideas. And so Emily's all like, all right, you could do it. But you could tell she's kind of like, is my granddaughter Camilla do this? We'll see. And then Emily throughout the episode is really unsure of a lot of Rory's decisions. Later, she's complaining to Richard that Rory has thrown out all of her prepared menus, including the salmon puffs, which are like sacrosanct. You can't take the salmon puffs out. They've never once not served salmon puffs. Yeah. It's funny because she just starts complaining to Richard while he's like reading a novel. And then she's like, listen to me when I talk to you. And he says, I'm sorry. It takes a second to emerge from Samuel Beckett. He's a strange man. (laughs) First off, that was super funny. Secondly, it's like, Emily, he was reading a book and you just start shouting at him and you're mad he wasn't, like, paying attention. She's always yelling at Richard while he's, like, in the middle of reading something. To be fair, he's always in the middle of reading something. To be fair, she's always complaining. So (laughs) it's like, find a happy medium, guys. I mean, the show has shown us that Richard, even though he's reading, is also listening to Emily. Like, she's always like, I can't believe he did this. And he's like, well, I am listening. I just don't give a shit. He just gives up on the book at some point, though. Yeah, he's like, good night, Samuel. Like it. Yeah. Emily's like, I'm trying to let her do this all by herself, but it's like really hard because she disagrees with so many of her decisions. Richard says, though, that he's not a good person to ask about this because he's never really been a big fan of the DAR food. I'm surprised Emily isn't like upset about this. A few times he says this and she like defends herself a little bit, but doesn't seem that upset. Yeah, it's confusing because I bet their food is good, but he says it's like fancy food. Yeah, then he tries to go back to reading, and then she just blurts out, she isn't serving salmon puffs. (laughs) Finally, Richard gives up on Beckett, like you said, and says that, like, listen, there's nothing to worry about. Whatever Rory tackles, she conquers, okay? And she's gonna conquer this, too. He goes on to talk about how amazing and smart Rory is, and that if she's excluding salmon puffs, then she's probably got a good reason for it. He's got complete confidence in Rory. And then Emily's like, okay, okay, 
And then she sits there for a little while. And then she finally just kind of like sadly blurts out, salmon puffs. (laughs) (laughs) So funny. Gotta get some salmon puffs, yo. Yeah. Can someone send us salmon puffs? Yeah, I want to try some of these salmon puffs. To be fair, they were popular at the party in a previous episode. Luke and Lorelai are having dinner at Suki's, a super unpleasant experience where their son Davey is watching TV at full volume, and Suki and Jackson are trying to teach him to like follow rules and directions so they won't turn down the TV. They just keep yelling at Davey to turn it down. This is very annoying, even to watch from our perspective. It's like, turn it down, turn it down, Davey, turn it down, turn it down. He's probably too young to turn it down. Yeah, he really does seem too young to turn it down. In the baptism episode, he looked barely older than Martha. I think it's the same kid. Yeah, I get this, though, because my dad is losing his hearing. So every time we're at the house, I'm like, Dad, can you turn the TV down, please? It's at like 100. And he's got to learn to do things for himself. (laughs) It's funny you say that because, like, he'll watch, like, Facebook reels also at, like, super high volume. (laughs) And I'm just like, I hope you're not like on the train doing that. I don't know why I said that. My dad's not taking a train there's, in there's Wisconsin. No train this dinner at Suki and Jackson's seems like a nightmare. Jackson is just so obnoxious. He's like trying to remember a new TV show on TV. He's like, what's that show on TV? You know, where they solve crimes. Then he starts interrogating Luke about what was that vegetable that I thought you liked? I thought this was funny because they were all just like trying to remember the name of the TV show. And they were just saying, you know, the one where they solve crimes and poke organs. Like there was different variations of that. Yeah. It's kind like, of insinuating that's all that's on TV now. Right. Which is still kind of true. Yeah. I just really love that Jackson part where he's like, what was that vegetable that I thought you liked? Yeah. Because he made squash thinking that was it. Yeah. Like, what was that vegetable I thought you liked? Like, like Luke should know. Yeah, it's just so funnily worded. Because it wasn't like, what's that vegetable that you you do like? It's the one I thought you liked. He also, the scene opens by Jackson reassuring Sugi he turned off the barbecue. Yeah, <laughs> like which he did not. Through the scene, he's like, oh, I forgot to turn off the barbecue. So it's kind of like a loud mess. I liked the scene. It was chaotic, but I thought it was like a weird, fun little chaotic play. Sure. It was like well-timed. I agree about that. Yeah. There was like a lot of little games going on. Yeah. And like Suki just keeps getting up to like go get something for the food. Paul Ank is eating something. Yeah, He has his own special fork. While Luke is eating and the baby is crying and Suki is angrily counting down at Davey to turn off the TV and Jackson is rushing to turn off his barbecue. Lorelai looks at Luke and she has like a thought of some sort. We don't know what it is, but she looks at him and you could tell she's like thinking about something. We should mention that Luke is being cool. He's just not complaining, just eating while this chaos is happening around him. The next day, Richard shows up at the end with his insurance guy to examine the wall. Sugi is bragging about how they don't need an oven. So she's like excitedly listing all the different sandwiches and salads and different things they can make without an oven. And then she just finally just breaks down. She's like, I need an oven. I need an oven so bad. This is before Richard comes. She's like giving a pep talk to her servers how they'll be okay. Then Richard enters. He explains that his agency usually does not cover businesses like the inn. But they had. They had made an exception for her. That's why they were giving her the runaround because everyone was very confused. It was like, we don't cover inns, but they do sometimes. There's very few exceptions, and they're one of them. And as soon as this claim came across his desk, he came to help. And he's like, don't worry. I'm going to write you a check today. He just needs to have his insurance guy look at stuff. Lorelai is happy, you know, that this is all going to be covered. She, like, smiles at her dad for about a second. Then she immediately starts laying into him, asking about, how's the Rory plan going, huh? Is she back at Yale yet? Are you going to trick her into going to Yale? What's your plan? Super sarcastic and super biting to her dad. Richard is uncomfortable, but he sort of takes it. He's kind of like talking to his insurance guy, like, can we go a little faster? Let's move on. But like, isn't really 
addressing the stuff that Lorelai's saying, or at least trying not to fight with her. Until Lorelai asks if the Huntsburgers are being any nicer to Rory now, nicer than that time where they humiliated her at that dinner. That's when Richard finally responds. Even though Lorelai says that Rory told her all of this happened, Richard insists that he knows the Huntsburgers and they are fine people. This must be some sort of misunderstanding. It's simply not true that this happened. They did not do that to Rory. Has he ever asked Rory? That is a good question. You'd think he would ask Rory. Or you think Rory would have maybe told them. Yeah. I mean, maybe she doesn't want to talk about it. It's pretty embarrassing. Yeah. So then Richard leaves. It's tough, right? I, I feel like, I don't know. She is mad at Richard, but I feel like Richard's there to do the right thing. And she's just immediately just like, I'm mad at you. But they, they are fighting. Yeah. I mean, I feel like she didn't feel like making small talk when they're fighting. But it is maybe a little. She was a lot. She could have asked in a nicer way, maybe. Yeah, I mean, she was just like, I want to fight with you. And he's like, he's here to, like, help you and, like, do the right thing. Like, don't be here if you don't want to talk to your dad. You know what I mean? Like, anyway, I get her perspective, though. But I also get Richard's perspective. As far as Richard and Emily are concerned, I've said this before. Richard is not a perfect dude. He's made tons of mistakes. He's he's not always a good dude. But I feel like when it comes to his granddaughter, he does try to make the best decisions for her. He does care about Rory. So, I don't know. Rory, by the way, is working hard on organizing the DAR fundraiser. She's meeting with her new DAR assistant and a bunch of other people making the very crucial plate decisions. <laughs> Some of this stuff, I was like, whatever. Okay, it's rich people stuff. They're doing all this in the pool house. Logan calls. He's got her a great sound guy. The scene is like filmed kind of weird. It's like a weird action shot of him walking down a hall at Yale while like gesturing with a fistful of books. It's like, all right, cool. <laughs> it's like that. We got to add some action here. We got to make this seem like stuff's happening like in the West Wing. I guess that's true. It's just like a funny shot of him just like walking quickly down the halls of Yale. Like, I got the best sound guy. He's going to really be cool. He does all of my events. I'm like, okay, sure. Cool. Re the plates. I mean, they're trying to make sure this event is like as period specific as possible. Yeah. And they can't get period specific plates. So they're like trying to find ones that can kind of look like it. Yeah. And then there was some weird stuff about like getting plates from California. It's like some plates are in a museum or something there. And the people in California are, like, being reluctant to give them the plates. And she's all like, ugh, granola eaters. But I'm like, are, are they going to fly these plates over for you? What are you talking about? Was that the plates? Or I think they were trying to get a color photo of a certain spot that they were trying to, like, replicate with the decoration. You might be right. That's possible. I Yeah, you might be right. I don't know. I know there was talk of plates and of getting an image to copy. Oh, by the way, the theme is USO. People dress up like it's a 1940s USO show. We'll get to that later. Paris shows up in a panic. What else is new? Because she's broke. She's having a Cordelia Chase experience. Her parents got caught by the IRS, and now she has nothing. Since she's in a panic, Rory offers her a job serving at this DAR event. This storyline becomes super funny because Paris now identifies as a poor person and becomes socialist, like, immediately. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll get into that more later. It's super funny. She agrees to the job. She's excited for it. It's pretty funny because she asks Rory for money when she's leaving. She's like, hey, can you spot me, like, 20 25 <laughs> she's also super mean to everybody it's paris is mean all the time she's so mad that this woman doesn't let her into rory's house then she's like questioning this woman she's like who are you it's like you don't know maybe she's rory's fucking friend maybe it's rory's boss like chill out she is pretty funny in this episode though paris oh yeah this is one of the ones where it's like paris is mean but like they play it right here like the writing is like she's mean and blunt but like in a funny way that doesn't make you hate her Back at Lorelai's, Luke is cooking them dinner. He's also cooking Paul Inca dinner to his exact specifications, making him a little burger just for him. Mm -hmm. 
Paul Inca, if you don't remember, is Lorelai's Rory substitute. Uh, it's it's a adopted dog with like a thousand quirks and fears. Like every episode, they add a new fear or quirk for this dog. Luke notices a flyer on Lorelai's fridge from Miss Patty's annual recital, and Luke says they should go. She says he's been doing all these things she wants to do, like going shopping with her or going to Suki and Jackson's for dinner with all the kids. And she just feels bad that she's doing all this stuff for her, and she, he should be able to do stuff he wants to do. This is where that thought comes back. It's clear this is what she was thinking about at Suki's. She wants him to have some Luke time and do some Luke stuff. Like, he should go camping. He thinks it over for a while, and he's like, all right, okay. She, like, insists that he wouldn't like this Miss Patty's recital. Just a quick one-night camping trip. Yeah. It's also weird because he's like, "Uh, great, I can have that night off. I could have Caesar clothes. He can also work, so he doesn't have to go camping. Yeah, I I don't know that... The people making the show know what camping is. Uh, they definitely don't. Like, you can go camping for one night, but we'll we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, it's we'll we'll get there. Also having dinner is Emily, Richard, and Rory. But Rory is distracted because she keeps getting texts about her DAR fundraiser or remembering things she has to text other people about. At first, Emily's really annoyed that Rory is getting texts during dinner until she finds out that the event is sold out. They're having to turn people away. Apparently, both the theme, USO, and the quote-unquote online campaign were going like gangbusters. That's what they said. The online campaign went like gangbusters. Online campaign sounds like what an old person thinks young people do. It's just like, it just sounds so like, what is, what is the online campaign? This is like pre-Facebook targeted ads. Like, Yeah, what? do you think that Gilmore Girls is just a big commercial for the internet for old people? Totally. <laughs> like, what is this online campaign? It just sounds like something that like, A business is like brainstorming. What about like an online campaign? I have no idea what that means, but it sounds like what people are doing. I mean, this is like very early Facebook, like probably just when Facebook was limited to college kids. Right. So I don't really know how the internet worked back then. I mean, I can't remember like what that would have looked like. You know, like now you'd like pay for ads or you do events on Facebook or. But I think too, when the internet first started really taking off, And, like, advertising agencies were like, let's use the internet. At first, they found out that a lot of the things they were doing were not successful, like banner ads and stuff like that. People didn't look at them. I mean, they might just be emailing people. That was something that they pitched. Yeah, they talked about emailing, yeah. We had never thought of email. Email. Well, I mean, honestly, they were really blown away by Logan's use of email earlier, like three episodes ago. So it might just be that. Yeah, but just say email campaign. Don't say online campaign. It just sounds so, like, there's no way Rory would say that. Yeah, I don't know how I would have, like, been reached to know about an event via the internet in, like, 2005. Yeah, but also the audience for this event, right, is, like, older rich folks, which I'm like, are they big online and emailing? Like, Well, they're probably not getting a ton of emails, so if they get one that's like, come to this yeah, event that's, that's 40s-themed, they might be excited. But did they also not get a letter that said that? Right. Maybe you can do more with, like, graphic design in an email. You don't have to, like, pay to print it. I don't know. Emily and Richard congratulate Rory for selling out this event. And then Emily's all like, continue texting. <laughs> That's really funny. Like, she's all about the tech. Go ahead. You could text during dinner. You're going to sell out these DAR events. Computers are great. Yeah. Do more online campaign. At the event, Rory is again channeling Emily as a manager. She's like micromanaging everybody, but a nicer Emily, to be fair. You know she's a nicer Emily because she tells everybody at the event to make sure they have a little fun. I don't know what the hell that means. It sounds like a recipe for disaster. Oh, I think it just means try to have a good time and don't make this all about work. We're at the event. It's happening. Take it all in. 
Enjoy yourself. I don't know what that all means. What does that mean, though? Have a little fun. Really, though. Like, it either means, like, don't work that hard or, like, get drunk at work. Or it's empty. It's just, like, a have fun. But, like, don't do anything different than if you weren't having fun. I think it's a little empty. Yeah. She might mean it to her assistant. Maybe. I feel like you can have fun and work. Like, the servers are all in, like, period clothes and stuff. Yeah, I, like I said, it just it sounds empty to me. Whatever. I love her sweater. Yes. It's like this white sweater, but it's got, like, this, like, bow built into the collar. She also gives her assistant shit for, like, taking too long to catch up. But then it turns out, like, her assistant was, like, doing something that was helpful. It was, like, a weird moment. I don't know why they had it in the episode. She's all like, girl, you got to catch up. And she's like, well, I was telling the, like, the door bouncer man, like, what's going on? She's all like, okay, cool. I kept wondering how old her assistant was. Because Rory's, like, 20. You got to imagine this woman's out of college. She looked older than Rory. Yeah. I just imagine she's probably, like, an entry-level age, but just, like, kid is bossing her around suddenly. Right. Well, she's probably used to, like, rich people bossing her around, so. Yeah. Paris is super excited to have punched into a real job. She was like, I punched in. It made a little clicking sound. I loved it. Paris was a little worried about having to interact with, you know, working people. So she rented Working Girl and the first season of Just Shoot Me so she can relate to her coworkers. This is all undercut, though, because then she says, like, you know, I've got a couple of... And she said some French word, which I could have looked up, but it didn't. <laughs> but it's just, like, I think to show, like, you're not going to be able to actually relate because they're not going to know what word you just, just said. <laughs> yeah. I also like the idea that, like, you got to watch Just Shoot Me to, like, relate to people. <laughs> it's really funny. You just watched a bunch of Just Shoot Me. I did, yeah, yeah. Paris is pumped to be working class now. Their outfits, by the way, are super cute. They have World War II type uniforms, and they do their hair all like World War II-y. <laughs> World War II-y, that's not an adjective. Uh, like 1940s-ish. <laughs> oh my God, this town is like so drab. It's kind of World War II-y. What's going yeah, on? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the descriptor really changes depending on where you are. <laughs> I want to say, though, that Paris looks great in her outfit and her hair is awesome. This is like the cutest Paris has ever looked. Yeah, Rory looks cute, too, but I feel like this look really suits the actress's face. Yeah. I don't think that Rory looks that cute, quite honestly. I feel like she looks better not done up like this. I like her makeup, but I don't like her hair. It's kind yeah, of like I agree. frizzy. I like the softer curl that like Paris has going on. Paris is taking things way too seriously. She's being weird. There's a really funny scene where she gives someone an appetizer from her tray. And then she asks how she did. She wants to know how her working class transaction went. (laughs) This poor dude is like getting questioned by her. And he's like, well, you offered it to me well. And it seemed great. And I don't want to talk about this anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Richard and Emily show up. They're like, this is great. Everything's great. Rory's like, yep, things are going very well, except nobody's dancing. Then Richard's like, all right, Emily, let's go show these fuddy-duddies how to dance. And Emily's all like, we can't dance before eating. That's crazy. But he talks her into it. And they start dancing before dinner, which is scandalous. It's nice. It is nice. It's a super nice moment, especially because Rory, like, looks at them and smiles and sort of like, oh, you know, Grandma and Grandpa are happy and in love. People always talk about their wedding dance being really nice. And that might be because he, like, dedicates a song to her. But I feel like they show way more of their dancing here. And they're doing a good job. Yeah. Also, I'm glad that Emily is, like, happy about the event because they were kind of almost setting it up like she was going to be jealous that Rory was doing it well or, like, just pick everything apart. But they didn't. They flipped it. She was wrong for being skeptical of Rory. Yeah. It's interesting because I thought they were going to do sort of, like, what they did with Jason Digger when he had a different idea than hers. Mm -hmm. And she would just take it away personally. I I think it it was never Emily's event. It was Constance's event. Right. So... Emily's but like, happy that it's going better now. 
a lot of the staples of Emily's events, like salmon puffs or whatever, yes. are sort of like poo-pooed now. Yes. And you, she doesn't seem to take it personally, which I liked because I didn't want to see Emily be mad about that again. Mm-hmm. This is obviously a great Emily episode. Yeah. Uh, specifically, like Richard and another guest point out how great Rory's food is. They have like kind of simpler food like mac and cheese and stuff. And Emily does say something like, well, the food I have is always good. And Richard agrees. He's like, yeah, but it's like fancy good. And it's nice to have like not fancy food for once. It's possible they're setting up like some tension between Emily and Rory when it comes to this stuff down the road. I agree. I do think, though, that somebody says, this other woman at the table says that, like, oh, Rory reminds me so much of you. And I think that maybe diffuses it a little bit because it's mm-hmm. like, no, she's channeling you. So it's all, this is reflects on you well, Emily. And there's some stuff in this episode that Rory still has to learn about just, like, class and, yes, I don't know, just, like, rules of rich people that Rory doesn't understand yet. That's when the Huntsburgers arrive, unannounced. Specifically, Shira with her gaggle of angry women. And Shira's not being nice about it. Rory's assistant comes up and says, like, we got to find them a place. They're being super rude to me. Rory goes to the back room and just starts complaining to Paris about all this. It's funny because Paris is being supportive on the one hand, but also, like, doing little monologues about, like, the establishment and then, like, how rich people own the means of production and it's got to be stopped and how she totally gets Karl Marx now. All this Paris stuff is so funny because, like, on paper, she's being a good friend to Rory. She's, like, listening. Yeah. She's, like, filtering it all through this, like, internal problem she's having, which is just such a good example of Paris. Yeah, totally. This is, like, very well-written Paris. It's very funny. It's like, can we just have this kind of writing for Paris all the time? Like, she's being a good friend, but she's still, like, being selfish. Right, right. Yeah, She because she is listening to Rory, and she's, like, offering advice and help, but, like, also has her own Mm sub-games. Rory's super pissed. She also mentions that Shira didn't give a donation that she's aware of. I don't know if this is going to come into play later, but she says that. Well, the woman who told Emily and Richard that the Huntsburgers had showed up mentioned that they gave a huge donation. So I think Rory just like didn't hear that and doesn't know they gave a donation. Because I think some people were giving donations that weren't coming and the Huntsburgers did not. So she just assumed that they haven't given a donation. Right. But it it doesn't in this episode, at least it doesn't matter. Like it never comes up. So I, I don't know why we talk about it. They, they set up that Rory's unaware of a very large donation that Shira gives. Yeah, I don't know if that's just a mistake. I feel like there's no way they wouldn't give a donation. That would be just like such a social faux pas. Right, especially since they're the richest people there. Yeah. But my point is like they set up this weird thing where Rory doesn't know about it, but like it never, it's not like she accuses them of this or something. Like it just, maybe it'll come up later in a different episode. Paris is actually refreshed to see Rory like lose her cool for once because Rory's usually the one that keeps it together and Rory's the one falling apart. Rory collects herself and greets Shira. Shira is like, Rory, I didn't know you were running this. I think I've been bad. I just showed up without any warning. I didn't think I could come. And then I could. So I did with my friends. I told that to the woman who greeted me, but she was super rude about it. And I'm like, was she Shira or were you the worst? Um, Probably you were the worst. I feel like she's dressed weird. It seems like too sexy for this event. I guess she's maybe meant to be a bit of a younger woman than, like, Emily and Richard. I suppose. I mean, I think it's clear to me that Shira has used her sexuality to get things. Oh, yeah. Emily makes that pretty clear. It just feels like not the right vibe. It's, like, springy. It's fall. Yeah, I also think this, like, event was maybe, like, a last... She might have been, like, getting drinks at a bar with her friends before this. Rory finds her a table. They kept a, a table just for this emergency situation of people showing up unannounced. She takes her to this table, just like smiling through her teeth, especially when she was like, no Logan tonight. 
Or is that like, no, he doesn't like this kind of stuff. She's like, yes, it's not really his thing. God, she is a villain. I love this scene, though. They both hate each other so much, but they, like, know they need to pretend. Yeah, they're just both smiling and, like, being saccharine sweet to each other. Emily sees that the Huntsburgers are in the overflow tables, and she's like, oh, we've got to fix this. So she grabs the sheeting, so she grabs the seating chart from Rory. The sheeting she- chart. <laughs> we've got to sheathe them somewhere else. That's why they're here. That's why she's dressed like that, Rory. <laughs> If you don't know what we're talking about, you skip the intro. <laughs> uh, but she's like, we got to get them a better table right now or else people are going to talk about this big faux pas that we did. God, she loves bumping people. You can tell she's just like immediately looking through this list for any Baptists she can bump. Then she sees that Constance is there. And she's super, you know, her D.A.R. rival. And she's like, awesome. <laughs> like two wins in a row. Emily bumps some Baptists off a of plane once. Brian doesn't just hate Baptists. Yeah, if you didn't get that joke, you skipped some episodes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But Emily is very excited to bump Constance, her her DAR rival. Who we may or may not meet. I don't know. I I hope we find out that Constance also goes by the the nickname Eastside Tilly. That's what I'm hoping. We'll find out later, maybe. I don't know. They're friends with the town loner. (laughs) If this wasn't bad enough. Rory starts to have a bit of a panic attack when she sees that Mitchum Huntsberger has also arrived. Paris offers her, like, any of the variety of pills she has in her purse, even the mystery pills at the bottom of her purse. Rory says to Paris that she just can't face Mitchum after what he said, after what he did. Because if it wasn't for him, she wouldn't have dot, 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 dot. Paris is like, what, 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 what wouldn't she have done? And she doesn't say. But it's clear she wouldn't have dropped out of Yale. And she wouldn't have had the big fight with her mother. And her life wouldn't be tough. She wouldn't have stolen that yacht. None of that would have happened if it wasn't for Mitchum. I also like in this scene, she's, this is where she's saying they haven't made a donation. But she's like, that's not right. This is for our boys. <laughs> she's just like caught up in this reality. Yeah, they, all, the DER women keep referring to the troops as our boys. <laughs> Meanwhile, at the recital, Suki and Lorelai are hoping that the show's playbill has a typo. Because it says pubic speaking <laughs> The way they deliver that line, like, I really hope that's a typo. <laughs> that's really funny. It's like a dumb joke, but the way that they're, like, legit little worried is, is really funny. Uh, this entire scene at this recital is hilarious. The camera work, the kid dancers, the costumes, all hilariously over the top. The kids are dressed in what I would describe as, like, Disney slash Power Ranger versions of Clockwork Orange outfits. <laughs> The opening number, kids? Yeah, they're just like solid colors with these like little fancy hats on. Suki and Lorelai are really hyping the opening number. They're like, it's always great. Can't wait for the opening number. Then these kids come out singing and giving 100,000% and weirdly and awkwardly coming in the audience doing weird jazz hand stuff, making Lorelai super uncomfortable, throwing glitter on people. So funny to watch. The funniest line in the episode for me is when Lorelai's like cringing from all this and she's just like, this is... This is not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were excited about it until they started coming through the audience. She's like, this is not good. <laughs> they tossed so much glitter at her. There's no way that the whole cast didn't like just break laughing like 40 times in this scene. These kids just like dancing between them. We've got magic to do, magic to do, chuck and glitter at people. <laughs> Super funny. So... We did this for my high school choir. It was like a big move. Hold on. Let's change your imagery. It was a church choir. We were a religious school. The school was like kind of funded by different churches. So we would go to these churches, like one every Sunday and sing for the church service. 
And then our big move for our last song of the day was we would start it up in front like all the other songs. But then towards the end of the song, we would like go into the aisles of the church, like Mm -hmm. some of us in the middle, some of us on the outsides and like sing directly at the people. Okay, But like that's not good because we were were like a four part harmony choir. So if you're sitting in the crowd, you just got like one teenage bass singer with pimples right next to you. You're like only hearing that kid kind of lose the because we I think the director thought it was like surround sound, but you're just like hearing the dude that's next to you and not hearing the women on the other side. Right. We always thought it was so cool that we were like surrounding the people. But like when you're actually sitting listening to it, it's like, no, this is not the best way to hear a choir. Right. And it's weird. Like, where do you look? Yeah. Right into their eyes. We also would every Sunday march in from the back to like Chuck our and walk-ins. Glitter. No, but we would like kind of <laughs> dance like this weird little. I mean, I just want you to imagine the level of energy we had was about a, a one compared to these. <laughs> <children>. <laughs> Nobody's smiling. Nobody's barely opening their mouths when they sing. I mean, we sounded good, but we weren't performing these songs. It was like very somber church music. That's funny. Yeah. It wasn't the same, but it was the same. By the way, this performance from the children transitions beautifully into Rory's event. It goes from the kids singing and kind of like melts into these like three female singers on stage. Yeah. It's cool. It goes from these kids to like these very professional, like period specific trio of women singing for the troops. For our boys. Yes. Meanwhile, Luke is camping by himself in what appears to be someone's yard. (laughs) I don't know where he's supposed to be, somewhere in the woods, in nature, but there's a giant spotlight on the left-hand side of the screen that he's, is, is he camping next to the road or like a street light? You <laughs> don't see the light, but you see what's illuminated by it. Yeah, it's clear to me that like the director or whatever was like, we need more light in the scene because it's just like so dark. We'll just put some light over here, like to the side. But if you're, it doesn't make any sense. Like, there's just a giant. Does he have his car just on with the lights just blaring? Like, what is happening? This is not how one camps. The moon. (laughs) The moon is just spotlighting this, like, little knoll behind him. It's way too much light. But also, how far did he go? Did he drive just like 10 minutes out of town and pitch a tent in the woods somewhere? Like, no, he's right by the side of the street. That's why there's a giant light there. He's just like a. (laughs) He's just in the park. He's like, he's he's next to the gazebo. In the middle of the town. He must be. He's just waiting for Taylor to shut off the town's light so he can go to sleep. But he drove there. <laughs> later we see him unpacking his truck. Yeah. Uh, but the camera focuses in on him, and I, I don't know what we're supposed to get. It's very silent. In retrospect, I think we're supposed to see that, like, maybe he's thinking about something or maybe he's unhappy. It's not clear. It just looks like he's camping. No, I think we're to believe he's sad. The music and him just, like, staring at the fire seems... But yeah. I mean, what else you do when you're camping by yourself, which is maybe not a thing people He's do. He's probably sad someone won't turn off their light. He's like, listen, I paid for this backyard, <laughs> porch light. Back at the recital, Kirk is doing the same final recital he did 20 years ago when he was a student of Miss Patty's. It's him pantomiming out his entire life, well, the life of a man, starting with his birth. <laughs> this is all accompanied by this, like, intense, ominous, like, chanting, maybe Gregorian music playing in the background. It's so funny, specifically because the guy who plays Kirk is so gifted with physical comedy and has such a lanky, weird body, and he knows how to, like, manipulate it to be weird. It's pretty great. It goes straight from him being born to, like, having a baby. (laughs) Suki says, like, it's going along at quite a clip. Lorelai sees that Luke is unpacking his camping stuff across the street, so she goes over there to ask him why he's back. I don't know how she could leave this performance, but she does. Luke says he felt like coming back. Isn't he allowed to do what he wants to do? 
She's all like, well, what's going on? Then they have sort of like a nothing fight that, I don't know, it's just to add something to the episode. Like, Because this fight is silly. He feels like she made him go camping. And he wants to know why she's trying to get rid of him. He felt like he was being banished. This is all a misunderstanding. He's like, I like spending time doing stuff with you, Lorelai, even if it's stuff I don't normally like doing. Like, I could be at this recital making fun of it with you. I would like that. And she's all like, well, I just feel like I've been making you do all these things that aren't things you would enjoy. And she feels bad that he has to do these things with her all the time. And she just wanted him to be able to do the stuff he likes to do. Personally, I feel like if she had these thoughts, she might say, hey, is there something you want to do that I could do? Like, I am not a big camper, but if you loved camping, I would go with you. She, like, learned to fish to go on, like, one date with that Alex guy a couple seasons ago. Luke, like, taught her to fish. She didn't like fishing. She didn't like the idea of killing the fish. So I could get her being like, you know, I don't like fishing. I don't like killing. But I feel like she's telling him to go camping. It's like, I could do that. Like, that's not crazy. Like, I'm not in love with camping, but it's important to you. You like it. Would you like me to go with you? Especially if it's just in the park. Yeah, it's just down the street. We could use the bathroom in this dude's house. Yeah, this fight is, like, nice. I don't know. I feel like it was well-written and performed, and it's just sort of, like, slice-of-life couple fight. Right. But it did kind of just get resolved, and I have an idea of where this might be going. Again, I don't super remember season six and seven. Mm-hmm. I, I could see maybe what they're trying to set up with this, but I, I don't exactly know if this is part of something or if it's just was like, eh, they need some drama. Yeah, as far as just self-contained episode, it seemed like, okay, is this a fight? Sure. Because it seems resolved. Maybe it's not. I I could see a world where he was just like, fine, I believe you for now, that you weren't trying to get rid of me. Because I don't think she was trying to get rid of him. I think Lorelai's telling the truth. No, I agree with you. But I also think she should go camping with him. It's like, you're going to love it. You love marshmallows. Just do it. But he decides to go back out camping, which is, what? You pitched a tent tonight. You It's so much work. You're going to go back out and pitch a tent again? Are you going to make a fire again? He's going to make another fire. It's like so much work to undo and redo. Yeah. Especially like doing this all in the dark. Is it that fun? Well, it's he not does dark. say. <laughs> he says too, like, maybe I'm going to do some fishing. I'm like, you do some midnight fishing? Like, what are you doing right now? Yeah. He doesn't say, like, maybe I'll stay out there and fish tomorrow. Is he going to fish now? Yeah. What? He never said, like, great, Caesar can close for me and open tomorrow. Yeah. I, I, it's whatever. It doesn't make any sense. They resolve it. It's all good. Lorelai goes back to Miss Patty's in time to watch Kirk pantomime dying. And the kids come back. Then the kids come back out with their very aggressive dancing and glitter throwing, singing, we've got magic to do. It's so funny. Everyone's singing it at the end. Kirk's singing it too. Yeah. Suki's like, this is so stressful. (laughs) (laughs) Back at the DAR fundraiser, Richard and Mitchum run into each other in the men's room. It's all very cordial and nice at first. Mitchum says that he thinks this event is great and not stuffy like the usual events. And Richard's all like, well, my uh, granddaughter Rory planned this. He's like, oh, great. She's such a sweet kid. I wish her the best. Then Richard asks, what happened? There seems like there was some kind of misunderstanding and some stuff got blown out of proportion. What exactly happened? Mitchum's like, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal. She's a great kid. And Richard's like, yes, she's the best. She's going to be a great journalist. And then Mitchum's like, yeah, maybe. Richard's like, what do you mean? Maybe. I read her stuff. It's good. And Mitchum's like, yeah, well, I read that stuff too. It's sort of my job. And I, I know what good is. Richard's like, well, yeah, she's still learning. Uh, you know, I'm, saying she's, I'm not saying she's as good as like the best journalist in the world right now, but she could be as good as a journalist like Ben Bradley one day. Then Mitchum just sort of smiles and says, yeah, anything's possible. 
Richard's more like, okay, what did you say to her? And Mitchum's like, hey, I was just being honest with her. Like, it's just business. Same kind of stuff you would do. She was a nice person. She was a great person. But she just didn't have it. And so I told her. She would eventually be bad for the company. So I didn't want that to happen. He did what he would do with anyone. And Richard would do the same in his business. She's better off for it. Now, before we go to the next part, I want to point out, and you've mentioned this to me, that in previous season... Rory wrote an article about a ballerina who was bad. And she was just, like, eviscerating this girl in this article. And the woman was really upset about it. Richard, she crushed that girl. <laughs> Sorry. Richard read that article and loved it. And at some point when Rory's like, you know, I feel bad because I did, like, rip apart this girl. And she's, like, hurt by what I said. And Richard says, you know, sometimes people have to learn that they're not good at something. And that's a net positive because even though it hurts in the moment and their dream is, like, crushed in the moment – then they don't waste time and money and effort and their life pursuing something they're never going to achieve. This is actually a positive thing because now she can go focus on something else and find out what she is good at and will succeed at. He didn't have a problem with the fact that Rory just like tore this woman apart in this article because at the end of the day, it's going to be good for the lady. But he seems to have the opposite feeling here. Now, you can argue that Richard like knows that these things aren't true about Rory. She is going to be a great journalist. But it seems a, a little hypocritical, though, I feel like, of Richard. But Richard is pissed when he hears about this. He says, you crushed her. That's the first time he says it. He's going to say it a bunch more. <laughs> then Mitchum says, and if she does have what it takes, she'll bounce back. He also says that one of her problems is that she lacked maturity. And Richard's like, yeah, she's only 21. And Mitchum's like, go ahead, blame me if you want. I felt bad about the whole Shira and my dad telling her that she wasn't good enough to marry into our family, so I gave her a shot, and she wasn't up to it. That's when Richard was like, you crushed that girl! Second time he says it, yelling it, and we've been saying it ever since. <laughs> I feel like this was part of an ABC family promo or something, because I, I remember hearing this phrase a bunch. Maybe they showed it in a recap? I don't know. I just feel like I've heard that phrase a lot. Maybe I've just watched the scene. Mitchum's like, we should have done this over the phone and leaves. So Richard storms out super angry and tells Emily it's all true. Everything Lorelai said is true. This does confirm, I think, that Mitchum was just telling her his feelings and wasn't mm -hmm. doing it to try to get her to marry Logan and not be a journalist. Right. He wasn't doing it to try to get her to be a better journalist. He was just telling her the truth. I agree with you with one caveat. I think that Mitchum, yeah, he felt that about her and told her. And he wasn't doing it for any other reason other than he thought she should know because she should get out of this business and pursue something she's actually going to be good at. Kind of like Richard suggested with that ballerina article. Mm -hmm. But he also says to Richard, you know, if she does have what it takes, she'll bounce back. So I do think that Mitchum, it's so interesting because I don't know that he is, and we've talked about this a little bit, that he is like a villain villain. No, he hasn't done anything wrong. I think he's just like very confident. Yeah, Like, I know what I'm talking about. I'm not afraid to tell people that I don't care about what's up. Yeah, and I don't know that he, like, puts on fake pleasantries and stuff generally. I feel like he's just, this is how I feel. Maybe there's problems with that. And, you know, maybe someone needs to tell him that that's not always the thing to do. But I, his line about if she does have what it takes, she'll bounce back. I think was him saying, like, listen, I know what I say is mean. And if I'm wrong, which is a possibility, then Rory's going to fucking show me. Yeah. Like, people who have it will make it regardless of the criticism. He even says to Richard, like, no one's ever criticized you. So it seems to me like Mitchum it feels like he did the right thing by saying this to her. Either she's going to do something else with her life or she's going to have this fuel her to be better. Right. So it's just such a – I like the writing on this. Because mm -hmm. it's like, ooh, Mitchum is 
making drama, but not like in some cartoonish, mustachioed villain way. Yeah. And it makes sense that Roy would dislike him. Yeah. Yeah. And that totally makes sense. So Richard is very angry, tells Emily it's all true. He's forming a little fist when he's talking to Mitchum. Oh, yeah. And he's like super pissed. And he's like, I'm going to punch him. And Emily's like, Richard, just go outside. Calm down. People are going to hear you. I'll be out in a minute. Then cold as ice, sweet as pie Emily, takes Shira to a better table, doing her a favor. She's like, here, I've got a better table for you. And then she just oh so sweetly mentions that they have a little bit of a problem. That she knows what Shira said to Rory at their house. Shira's like, I don't think we should discuss it. This is a party. This isn't the place or the time. And Emily's like, let's make it the time and the place. Meanwhile, while she's like saying all this stuff to Shira, she's still like greeting people nicely as they walk by and like saying nice things like, oh, have a great time to people. This is like all in a tone. Like, we're just talking like friends, but she's saying like the nastiest shit. Yeah. Shira mentions that there's a big difference between Emily's money and the Huntsberger's money. And Huntsberger's money comes with a bunch of responsibilities. Emily says that they're just as good as the Huntsburgers and they know about Logan's reputation, but they still welcome him into their home and they should probably be doing the same to Rory. Then Emily leans in super close and says, now let's talk about your money. You were just a gold digger that stumbled into town and somehow convinced Mitchum to marry you despite the fact that he was sleeping with a ton of women at the time. Good for you. Who knows how you did that? Wink, wink. By the way, you know he's still a playboy, right? Of course you know that. That's why your weight goes up and down so often. Anyway, our kids are going to be together for a long time, so you should get used to it. Now enjoy the event. And she walks away like a boss. <laughs> I have a question about the weight thing. Is she saying, like, she loses weight to, like, get him interested again? Or, like, I don't... Um. Or, like, the stress of knowing he's cheating makes I think her weight? because he's cheating, she... Yeah, she like stress eats and then loses it. I don't know if she loses it to win him back or if she's just because she needs to be a certain weight for her social status. She loses yeah. it. But I, I think the idea is she's gaining weight because she's unhappy mm. regularly. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. The episode ends with Richard coming back in and seeing Rory on stage, thanking everyone for helping her put this event together. And he's very angry and he comes in and then he sort of looks at her and sort of like, I don't know, looks sad. And like the anger fizzles to like sadness or empathy for her. He's sad that this all happened to her. That it's all true. I, though, am wondering if there's more going on in his face. Yeah. If it's like what we were saying with Mitchum suggesting uh-huh. maybe she doesn't have it. If Richard is now like, I don't know if they're really that clever about the ballerina thing, but like if he's not remembering that, he's yeah. seeing how good she is at this and is like, shit, maybe her not being a journalist has given her time to see she's got other talents. Yeah. Like hearing that criticism has opened her eyes to other things. Maybe she doesn't have it. Maybe he does know what he's talking about. Because I think in the moment, Richard, like, can't accept what mm-hmm. Mitchum's saying because he's like, my granddaughter's perfect. Nah, you're wrong. But, like, if he's thinking about it as a businessman, as Mitchum suggested, maybe she doesn't have it. I don't know. Yeah, that's a very interesting thought because he says to, well, he says to Mitchum, like, I've read her stuff. She's good. Which in that moment is like, I have evidence to support my idea that she's good. And it does seem like Rory is doing well at the paper. Like, it's not just Richard saying that. Like, other people have said that. She's getting good articles. Well, she's been good throughout all of her time at Yale. Like, Mm -hmm. every newspaper she's worked on, she's, like, gone to the top. Yeah. Richard also says to Emily, like, she's got it. And Emily's like, of course she does. Which would back up the fact that she does have it. Now, that being said, it could be that they're both in denial. Like, no, this is our granddaughter. She's great at everything she does. She's amazing. And we're deluding ourselves. 
But I think as viewers, we're at least, until the Mitchum moment, have been led to believe she is very good at this. Yeah. However, I guess there is also that scene where she's, like, flunking a class at Yale. Mm-hmm. And the guy's all like, you know, it's fine to fail at something. Like, you, you just have too much in your plate. Like, you think you're this all-star, and you are great, but, like, just because you think you could do everything doesn't mean you can do everything. So maybe that was a little bit of a precursor to be like, hey, check yourself. Maybe some of the things you think you're good at, you're not the best at. I don't know. Interesting. I like your thoughts about Richard at the end there. Yeah, I just feel like there was more on his face than Mm -hmm. I'm happy about this right now. He looked like he was reflecting and kind of bummed. Well, you know what happens in the show, so I'm interested to see what happens. And he's so good with his face. Oh, yeah. Actor's great. Do you think this is a good episode? Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Top five, maybe. Top five? I don't know. It's top ten, I think. Yeah, it's a good episode. All of this DAR stuff was real good. And the recital was super funny. Emily and Richard are great. That's the Emily moment is like top five Emily moments for sure. Oh, yeah. It was super good. You almost like like Emily again, right? Yeah. Well, Emily being mean is like, that's what she's good at. And like giving her an excuse to be mean where she's not the villain. I also think Sheer and Mitchum are great. Like they kind of play their parts well. Yeah. But yeah, it, was, it wasn't like the most hilarious episode ever, but there was a lot of funny stuff. But the drama yeah. was great. Parrish was great. The recital was great. Luke and Lorelai's fight, I liked enough. Yeah, no weak spots. And the, the 1940s vibe was cool. Like it felt like a yeah. special episode with like a budget, almost like the wedding episode last season. Yeah. Loved it. Great. And now for a special segment we like to call Meanwhile Uncharmed. Charmed was another popular WB show airing around the same time that neither of us have seen. But we're discussing it anyway. Based only on its IMDb summaries. Brian, what happened on Charmed? Meanwhile on Charmed Season 6 Episode 5, Love's a Witch, Paige becomes attached to Richard Montana, who is involved in a dangerous feud between two magical families. Paige becomes possessed by Richard's deceased lover, and Leo is suspicious of Chris's intentions. Well, I assume she becomes attached to him romantically, and not physically. Right. Well, I mean, it could just be like a friendly attachment. I would assume it was physically, but like based on the fact that a deceased lover's getting involved, seems like a jealous thing. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. So this guy's name is Richard Montana, which is stupid. Yeah, I mean, it is. It just is. This guy's name is Dick Mountain. <laughs> Two I mean, women depending on what over rules Dick you're Mountain. following, <laughs> Montana means mountain in Spanish, but Richard doesn't mean Dick in Spanish. It does. Uh, a lot of people don't know that. Okay, so that's two women, one alive, one dead, are fighting over Dick Mountain, and <laughs> Leo is a little also suspicious of Chris's intentions. But there's also a feud between two magical families. Right, that Dick Mountain's uh, in between. Dick Mountain's sown his oats. Yeah. For sure. And these two oh, yeah. magical families are two magical side families he's got going on, besides his deceased lover. Yeah. Trying to fight over who he spends time with and his dead wife, dead lover. It's like, surprise, surprise, I'm also annoyed at him. Well, I mean, I think Paige is spending some time with him and like the lover is all pissed from beyond the grave and is like, well, you know what? I want to end on some of this. And I think for a while, it's like he doesn't know that his ex is possessing Paige. He's just like, wow, Paige really learned how to kiss how I, I really like it. It's weird that she knows that. Richard Montana, we should mention, is super hot. Yeah, of course. I mean, come on. His parents named him Dick Mountain because he was just a gift to women. 
he came on the show and we were like, he's too hot to stay around. This is yeah. not going to be a permanent boy. No way. This guy's no going way. straight to the movies. Neo's also suspicious of Chris because Chris. I mean, Chris keeps showing up under the guise of wanting to see the birds. And it's yeah. like, that's what, really? a weird thing for an birds adult man. Birds aren't that great. Although birds are cool. Yeah, you're the one that made this bird thing happen in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I was halfway through the sentence. I kind of changed my mind. I'm like, I'd travel in time to see some birds. <laughs> Chris is just like really doesn't like the idea of them dating other people. Like he hates when they're like the women are like, I'm going on a date. He's like, ugh, maybe you shouldn't. And so Leo's always like, what? Why are you, are you trying to date all the women? What's, I don't understand. I'm married to one of them. Can we not? Yeah. Also, wait, was she trying to date people? Anyway, long story short, eventually Richard figures out that this is his ex-lover possessing Paige. And he's like, ah, don't do that. It's not cool. And sends her back. She remembers what she didn't love about him. She's like, oh, my God, you, like, never brush your teeth. Your breath's, like, not great, actually. Which, once Paige finds that out, she's like, you're right. I was just too lovesick. I didn't even notice. Yeah, she had had a cold, too. Mm-hmm. And, like, her nose is all stuffed up. She doesn't date Tick Mountain anymore. Yeah. Families are still feuding, though, so we'll see what happens with them. Yeah. There's a scene where Chris tries to, like, talk to the families, and this is an inspiring speech where he just keeps making analogies to birds, and they're just like, okay, sure, yeah, we'll stop fighting, wink, wink, we're not going to stop fighting. And that's the episode. It's weird that Chris gets involved. It is. But Dick Mountain's just a, a regular dude that loves going around sleeping with witches. Yeah. He's not even a warlock. He's just really into sleeping with witches. And Chris respects witches, so he's not going to stand for that. He just, like, has only learned to yeah. communicate through birds at this time. Totally. We still don't know what Chris's intentions are, really. But Leo's on to him. This is Ben. Meanwhile, on Charmed. Well, now let's talk about Buffy. Stacy, tell us all about Life Serial. Life Serial is about the trio. Is, it, is that what they're officially referred to as? Yeah. In Buffy lore? It's about the trio putting Buffy through a series of tests to, like, learn more about her so they can eventually get her out of their way. Meanwhile, Buffy's trying to figure out what she wants to do with her life as far as work and school, I guess. And the two conflict. Yeah. So Buffy gets back from visiting Angel. She's brought a bucket of chicken back with her, but finds that everyone's already eating dinner. Yeah, Angel's like, I can't eat this. You can take it. (laughs) I'm assuming she picked it up somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) He just brought it with him to their meet. Whatever. I can't eat this. You want to take it home? (laughs) I found it. She seems annoyed that they're eating without her, but, like, did you just expect four people would not have come up with some kind of dinner plan, not having yep. any idea when you'd be back? Did you even tell them what day you were coming back? Yeah. I always come back from Angels with Chicken. <laughs> so they all eat some pity chicken. <laughs> Willow tells everyone she's a breast girl. <laughs> and then Dawn's like, so, how was Angel? She says it was intense, but she wants to just keep things to herself. We don't see or hear anything about this on either show. There is a comic book somebody wrote about that meeting. I've never read it, but apparently there's some, like, controversy about whether or not it's canon. I I almost want to read it to be like, why, like, what could have happened? Yeah. You pointed out the shows are on different networks now, so it's just, like, logistically more complicated to do crossovers than it used to be, probably. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I just would have loved to see that or hear something about it. Yeah. Big thing that she went to see him. Like, they had similar experiences. They both went to heaven slash hell for, like, a long time. Yeah, and to me, I feel like she definitely told him about going to heaven. Yeah. Like, he's the one person she would not have to hide it from and, like, isn't connected to her group of friends who did this and probably wants, she probably wants, she told Spike. Yeah, did she tell Angel she told Spike? That's the whole thing. Yeah. I would have liked to seen it, but she doesn't tell him. Don's like, sure, whatever. 
Then with absolutely no transition, Giles asks her, so like, what do you plan on doing with your life then? (laughs) (laughs) She says, let the lady have some chicken first, dude. (laughs) She just got home. Give her like a second. She just said she had an intense day. Can we not figure out her whole life right now? Giles has got to get back to England, so he just he doesn't have a lot of time. He's like, let's go. What are you doing with your life? Do you want to be an He's astronaut? Also like, We've all been talking about you while you're gone. This is an yeah. intervention now? Like, I don't know. It's weird that, like, everyone's there, too. Whatever. Also, when was she supposed to have thought about this? She's been gone, like, a day. It wasn't a long trip. She was with Angel. It's not like she had time on a long boat ride or something to plan out her life. Yeah, especially, like, okay, so Giles out of the group is sort of like, we don't know where she was, right? But the consensus of the group is she might have been in a hell dimension or she was in hell. And Buffy said that to them, right? She said to... Yeah, she told them she was in hell. Giles suspects she's not saying everything. That's a lot of trauma. Like, she probably needs, like, several months to get over it. Not to mention the lingering trauma of, like, do we all go to hell when we die forever? Like, that's, like, the big question. She says she was thinking about going back to school, but she missed the registration cutoff. So she decides she's going to audit Willow and Tara's classes for a while. She asks Giles what he thinks about this, but we don't hear his answer. It cuts to the trio, fixing up a surveillance van in Warren's driveway. Like the kind of van you see in a heist movie. Bunch of computers and stuff inside, no windows on the back. Death Star on the side. Yes, this <laughs> Death Star on the side. <laughs> I want to point out that like Andrew's drawing like a Death Star, like painting one, and it looks perfect. I'm like, did you legit paint that? You it's are It's very intricate. Is he just like spray painting it? Yeah. <laughs> did you have a perfect stencil? They're talking about how they're never going to be able to take over Sunnydale with Buffy one step ahead of them. So they're going to throw a series of tests at her to discover some of her weaknesses. It's also like a competition for some reason. Like they're going to take turns doing different things and they have some kind of unclear point system to see who fucks with Buffy the best. Yeah. Warren assures Jonathan that the van's interior is packed with high tech stuff and the outside is very discreet. Buffy will never notice it. And that's when we see the Death Star. Andrew reluctantly agrees he'll paint over it. Buffy goes to one of Willow's classes, sociology, with Mike. It's a big deal that they call their professor Mike. It's progressive. I feel like we had teachers we called by their first names for sure. Did you? I had a lot of teachers I called Mike. That wasn't their name, but I did it. (laughs) I'm not sure what this class is specifically, but you know that person you went to college with who always had to raise their hand and say something? Yeah, it was me. Every person in this class is that person. (laughs) Did you say like you? Yeah. I was smart. Sorry, everybody. I had shit to say. I'm glad I didn't meet you until after college. (laughs) I didn't have time for anything but college. I didn't have time for sheathing or partying. I was getting answers answered. Wait. You sheathed. (laughs) They're discussing social construction of reality. I don't know. Everyone's very into it. It feels like they're almost talking about Buffy. Like, this is one of those scenes where it's like, what this class is about is about the episode. I feel like you could connect it. It's all, they're using very big words. I had a hard time following it as well. Buffy has two separate reality change things where, like, reality is different for her. So that might be connected. They're also saying, like, your life is what you make it and you're in control of it type stuff. And Buffy's, like, trying to figure out her life right now. Mm -hmm. But it's not, like, as direct as these scenes can be sometimes. Right. Afterwards, she's telling Willow and Tara how hard this was for her. Maybe it'll get better. She's just got to ease into it. When someone bumps into her and sticks a little thingy to her. She doesn't know that yet, but we see it. It's Warren. He reports back to his cohorts that the inhibitor is on and that they should initiate the Omega Pulse sequence. Wow. I mean, I guess he knows what he's doing with technology and stuff. 
The thing I want to point out here is that, like, if they legit are trying to get rid of the Slayer for some reason, it seems like they're kind of fucking with Like, if they had just planted a bomb on her, she'd be dead. Or, like... Well, I don't think they want to kill her. Sure. Yeah. You're right. They don't. Well, Warren does. But, yeah, I hear what you're saying. No, he agreed they shouldn't in the last episode. And then told the demon to kill her. Yeah, that's true. But he, I don't think they want to do it. But is a bomb doing it? Mm. They initiate the Omega Pulse sequence and a giant satellite comes out of the top of their van. I thought they were trying to be discreet. <laughs> also, they're parked in a spot that doesn't really seem like a spot. They're just like badly parked all by themselves, like right outside the building. Yeah. But Buffy and Tara are killing time before Tara's next class. Tara hands her a picture book to look at because she's dumb now. It was funny. Bobby's like complaining how dumb she feels. And Tara's just like, here, look at look at these pictures. You yeah. Can handle that. <laughs> but then Buffy hears this like mechanical whooshing sound. And suddenly Tara is sitting down in the middle of a story about cooking for Willow. Buffy's like, wait, what just happened? Did you hear that noise? What's going on? I must have spaced out. Tara's like, oh, I do that sometimes. She starts telling her another story. Buffy takes a drink of water. We hear the noise again. And suddenly Tara's at the end of the hallway telling Buffy they're going to be late for class. So obviously, like, time is passing while we hear this whooshing, but not for Buffy. Yeah. It happens again. It seems like more and more time is passing. This time for Buffy, only like a second has passed, but Tara's gone to a whole dang class. She starts to explain to Tara what's going on. She looks at the clock and watches 10 minutes fly by, but Tara's just, like, gone. She's walking back home. They maybe just didn't feel like thinking about the logistics of this. And it's such a small part of the episode, but I would have loved to have known what Tara was seeing during this Yeah. Time. Is Buffy just, like, standing there motionless? Yeah. Like, are we to believe Buffy was just getting a drink of water forever and Tara got bored, walked away, and just yelled at her from the end of the hallway? Yeah. And then just watched Buffy stare at a clock for 10 minutes and instead of trying to help her or call Willow or Giles, she just went home and left her there? <laughs> yeah. Like, Buffy will figure it out. Buffy goes outside. Everything's just a constant whoosh now. Everyone else is going at full speed. People are bumping into her, knocking her down. Again, are people just seeing a person fully spaced out and just like run into her not caring? The three dudes are watching all this from their van. Buffy eventually takes shelter under a little table and discovers the bug. They decide they got to self-destruct it. It kind of just goes poof. It's just like button sized, very small. Yeah. Everything's back to normal for Buffy. Then they use this, like, nonsense rubric to score Warren's performance on how this went. Like, he's got some points. It, it never really, this part was dumb. I don't know why it needed to be a contest. Because they kind of don't explain it or follow through with it. I don't even know if they score Andrews. But Andrews right. up next. Seems like Buffy's given up on college and has decided to start working construction with Xander. We learned through exposition that Buffy has told Giles about the time glitch she experienced. He suggested it was maybe stress-related, but that doesn't explain the little device she found. It's one of those things, too, where it's like, guys, if Buffy tells you something's weird, it's, she's right. It's always the case. I would, if she tells you something, be like, all right, cool. If something happened to you, we're going to figure it out. Yeah. Xander's construction crew is not even humoring the idea of Buffy God, working I construction. This, this whole scene, all of this construction stuff bothers me so much. They're so mean to her. Like, I get it. She doesn't appear like she'd be good at construction. Yeah, like, I get the idea of them initially being like, what are we doing, Xander? You brought in this, like, little girl to do, like, hard labor. But then as soon as they see her, like, lift a giant piece of, like, iron, they'd be like, oh, okay, well, yeah, she can. Never mind. They'd have questions about that, but yeah. Yeah, they would have questions, but they would be like, okay, but she can do it, though, so that's fine. I feel like in real life they'd handle this with just, like, a little more tact. Like, yeah. yell at Xander privately. Or at least, like, let her try something and fail first before you're just like, this little girl working a job like this. 
They like make jokes about her period. I don't know. It's just like too much. He assures them she's stronger than she looks, which she quickly proves is true, which they also don't like because she's working too fast and they get paid hourly. So they want it to take a long time. The boss also said they were a week behind on this project. So maybe they should be working a little faster. Buffy's sad. So she goes to get some water. The boss like sneaks (laughs) up with what? It's just a funny sentence. I was sad. So I got some water. (laughs) (laughs) That's what happened. The boss like sneaks up on her with a giant wrench. Pretty sure it's meant to be an ominous misdirect because we know Andrew's up to something. But was he going to do something to her with that wrench? The trio spy on Buffy. Again, not subtle. They're using the biggest binoculars I've ever seen. (laughs) Yeah. They're so big. Yeah. They're like a foot long. It's Andrew's turn. He plays a little flute, which conjures three green-faced demons in various long coats and jewelry. She fights them all, squishing the final one in one of those, like, lifts. A bunch of the construction dudes are watching this whole thing. Yeah. Warren and Andrew start fighting over the giant binoculars when Warren pushes Andrew into the Van Horn, which plays the Star Wars theme. So (laughs) I guess he didn't reverse all the Star Wars choices he made. Bubby notices the van, but quickly has to deal with the construction site she just ruined. The boss says he was coming over with the wrench to tell her she did a good job and that she just suddenly went berserk and attacked him. Buffy tries to tell Xander it was demons. He's like, no, not in my job. That's your job. He seems kind of mad, but he like believes her. The bodies of these demons like melt when they die. So there's no proof. But it's weird that all these guys are denying that it happened. Like they showed at least three guys watching her fight them. Yeah. I could see one guy lying about it to like save his masculinity. But if you and your coworkers all witness something unexplainable together, you'd think you'd need to talk about it. Yeah, it's also like, it's weird to defend your masculinity when like a demon showed up. There were monsters. Yeah, like I don't feel less masculine if a demon beats me up, you know? I guess she fights, I don't, it just seems like, who are we, we, are we lying to each other? We all saw it. Buffy's clearly also magic. She's lifting these beams and she's tiny. Yeah. I could see them being like, I don't trust this woman because she seems magic. Yeah. And we just had like an evil magic thing showed up. So that's why I don't like her here. But that's not what they do. It's a weird, like, toxic masculinity thing. You'd think Tito would have stuck up for her. (laughs) I don't know if Tito was there today. He's a plumber. (laughs) Well, Xander fires Buffy, tells her to go talk to Giles. He thinks that between this and the thing at school, somebody might be messing with her. I mean, he is right, but it's also not that weird for three demons to show up. I think you need a bit more evidence to connect that these things are related. Happens every Tuesday, man. Her visit to Giles turns into a job at the magic shop. Anya's going over the procedures, and we see that there's a camera hidden inside a little skull on the shelf. Obviously, the boys are spying on Buffy. Mm-hmm. They're bored, though, with Anya's speech and pitch the idea of seeing if the van can pick up free cable porn. But before that... But also, they, they have, like, tons of money. Why do they need free cable porn? They can just buy porn. And just watch porn together in a van, like a normal thing to do. Like dudes do. <laughs> But before they can get to any kind of porn, Jonathan is ready to do a spell. There's a lot of jokes about his magic bone. The spell seems to work. The smoke in the van isn't great, but Buffy doesn't seem to notice the van parked out front yet. I do think that's funny that they always laugh like little children when he says magic bone. Yeah. It's dumb, but they're all like, (laughs) every time. A lady comes into the store. As Giles polishes his glasses, he gives Buffy some advice that you're more likely to have a satisfied customer if you focus more on service. Making a sale. She's like, cool, I don't really want to be here. Thank you. Anya encourages Buffy to go talk to the woman. 
Meanwhile, dude's having a crisis about which candle to buy for his romantic atmosphere. The lady's here looking for a mummy hand she heard that they had. Buffy goes downstairs to get it, but it's alive and wants to choke Buffy. So she stabs it with a... <laughs> what? Uh, just thought, that's why this woman likes it. She's just kinky. <laughs> it's like, I'd like to be choked, but at home by myself. And <laughs> She says it's for a prosperity spell. <laughs> Define prosperity how you will. <laughs> Buffy stabs it with a Chekhov's dagger. <laughs> Look up Chekhov's gun. If you didn't understand Stacey's joke, it's funny. If you didn't understand that joke, you have a read. <laughs> But the woman's not interested in a non-choking mummy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, how am I supposed to choke myself with that? It's dead. She doesn't want it. This hand's just doing what it's supposed to do. (laughs) (laughs) And then the same woman comes in again. Giles gives Buffy the same advice, same glasses polish. Is the DVD broken? Is Hulu not working? It's kind of a, we're setting up a Groundhog Day situation here. She's like, we just did this. What's happening? He just ignores her, keeps giving her the same advice. The dudes are watching this on their cameras. They're psyched. She's looping. Jonathan reveals that his spell has made it so that she has to satisfy a customer with a task that resists solving. So did he specifically cause the mummy hand? Did he conjure the woman? Was this woman coming in any way and the magics just sort of attached themselves to things already present in the situation? Yeah, I don't know. This is why I wonder if what was being discussed in the class has something to do with what's going on in the episode. Like, they're Mm -hmm. talking about if there's other realities and stuff. But they also can see this reality of Buffy's, which is Yeah, because they they also talk about it from, like, Giles' perspective. This was, like, no time. So I don't know how they're seeing Buffy's perception. Some other spell or technology? Anyway. Anya, again, tells her to go help the lady. Buffy, of course, is hesitant. And Anya's like, don't be nervous. Just do what I do. Picture yourself naked. (laughs) Candle guy's still there. Buffy tells the lady she can't get her the mummy hand. The lady's like, well, you have one. I called. I was told. Buffy's like, yeah, but there's a thing happening. (laughs) Woman's like, you just want it for yourself. (laughs) She's like, yeah, well, I'm not leaving till I get my mummy hand. I call it a daddy hand. (laughs) Buffy made that joke for some reason. Really? Yeah. I don't remember what, exactly what she said. She's like, well, it's downstairs, da, 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 so maybe it's more of a daddy hand. The lady was, like, not into it. But this lady, like, really needs this mummy hand, and yeah. I do not trust her. She looks evil as shit. Right. She might not be real. She might be part of the spell. Sure. Well, either way, they should maybe investigate what she's up to when they right. get this problem solved. Buffy's like, okay, whatever. I'll get it for you. This is also whatever. Who cares? Because this is, like, a trying to be, like, a funny episode, right? But they've already shown us in season two that the whole idea of, like, mummies is actually, like, sad. And so it's like a, a thing where a woman has to do this, become a mummy, and she's like, she doesn't want to be. So the idea that they have a mummy hand is sort of like, well, isn't this, like, a sad thing? Why do you have this? Is this, like, a different magic? Maybe Jonathan conjured it. I suppose so. They, he says he didn't enchant the mummy hand specifically because they asked if he did that. I, I don't know. They just They've already set up mummy lore in this, like, casual use of a mummy hand in a spell seems sort of like to go against what they've set up. Sure. Warren and Andrew comment that this is kind of like episodes of other TV shows like Star Trek TNG and X-Files. And Andrew just kind of casually drops that Scully wants him so bad. (laughs) What's going on here? He's like, Scully wants me so bad. (laughs) They all look at him like, what? Are we going to dive more into that? No, I, I think Andrew's just sort of maybe overcompensating for some stuff. Okay. 
Buffy comes at the mummy hand with a couple tools this time. She's got the Chekhov's knife and a tongs. She gets it, but it uh, doesn't have fingers anymore. Lady's not satisfied with a fingerless choking hand, so we start again. It's weird because Giles' dialogue is the same every time. Like, he says his thing, and no matter what Buffy says in response, he's like, yes, quite all right, and walks away. Like, she purposely, like, says some nonsense one time just to see if he'll react differently, and he doesn't. It might just be like he's not listening to her. But Anya's dialogue can change and is affected by what Buffy says. Yeah, I mean, I think we're supposed to believe that he's sort of not listening to her. Yeah. That's what it has to be. This time, she gets the hand, but it seems to be choking the lady at the checkout. We don't see how that's resolved, but if, if we're right, that should have been the key. <laughs> <laughs> Guess that's not what she wanted, at least not in the magic shop. She right. had a whole thing set up at home. That's funny. This time, Buffy walks straight out the front door, but ends up coming through the back one, so she can't escape. Then we see the mummy hand is holding the tongs, pinching them at Buffy. <laughs> yeah, that was super funny. She's just staring at it, bored. She tries ripping the little doorbell off. She's just getting more and more annoyed at the candle guy because she's got to deal with him every time. I honestly thought the answer was going to be the candle guy because yeah. Jonathan didn't say it had to be the lady she had to help. Right. She, just she said, could have like, helped this guy, actually, and then that would have been the happy customer. Yeah. But she did help him the first time. She gave him, like, the best candle. He was deciding between, like, lemon and slug for his romance. <laughs> be like, what's your girlfriend look like? Is she scaly? Then you're going to go with slug. <laughs> uh but I was like positive that the answer was don't help the mummy lady, help the candle guy. But yeah, at some point, Warren and Andrew were like dubbing over the surveillance footage. That was pretty funny. <laughs> Bubby smashes Giles' glasses in one of them. She also starts to wonder if it's the woman doing this. She tries to fight her. Finally, Bubby's like, hey, I know we promised you a mummy hand. I just can't get it for you. It's defective. But then she remembers that Anya was telling her about special orders and how they can have one delivered straight to this lady. So she did it. It's over. She gets one all set up to get sent to the lady. Giles is very proud of Buffy for making a sale, but Anya points out she didn't charge for delivery. It'll be coming out of her paycheck. Buffy quits. She's done. Anya says it nicely, though. It's very Paris-esque, right? Where she's like, you didn't charge for delivery. That's no problem. We'll just charge you. Yeah. Buffy goes to Spike's house and takes a bunch of shots. I love Buffy drinking because she does that. She like takes a shot and then she's like, Bleh! like every time. And then does it again and again. You can tell later when she's in the bar where they go, she's like off screen doing that. You can tell they're just using the same sound effect and dropping it in occasionally. Oh, you yeah. You don't see her. I mean, maybe she is. It's just making the same sound. She vaguely tells Spike about her problems and that Giles is working on figuring out what's doing this. He's like, nah, you got to get out there and question the demons to get answers. And it's fun. She's like, well, it's not my kind of fun. He's like, yes, it is. And your life's going to get a lot less confusing when you figure that out. He tells her she's not a schoolgirl or a shop girl. She's the creature of the darkness like him. It feels like it's maybe something. Like she's going to explore the creatures of the night, as he's suggesting, this season. Explore the creatures of the night? Yep. Sounds like a book I just read. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't really pay attention to this, though. She just keeps taking shots. Yeah. He tells her to try on his world, see how it feels. She's like, all right, are there drinks in your world? A lot of people like this scene where, because she does the, the shots and does the face, right? But Spike kind of looks at her and smiles like he kind of, he likes watching her do that or is like kind of like, ah. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people love that. They're like, I want to be looked at the way Spike looks at Buffy when she does her vodka face. Um, I mean, it was a sweet look. I, I wasn't that affected by the scene. I was just like, Buffy, you're making some choices right now. 
Well, a lot of people are really into Spike. They got their mummy hands and they got their Buffy Spike <laughs> episodes on. They're really into I'm not not into Spike. I see. I just think there's been like sweeter moments yeah. besides where he's watching her get wasted. Well, she's being like cute and like doing an ugly face, but he's, he's like amused by it. Yeah. I think people like that. I get that. It's like a gesture of affection or endearment that isn't like, I'm going to throw myself on a fire for you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do feel like Bobby's being a bit of a Rory right now. Yeah. Like, has she forgotten that Spike's in love with her? Oh. I guess I don't know what her feelings are for him exactly at this time. Like, she definitely doesn't seem to despise him like she did. But if she's not into him, she's kind of leading him on by, like, going to his house and getting drunk with him. Yeah, totally. In the same token, he is an evil creature of the night. Yeah. Just like Marty. <laughs> well, I've heard, I've heard some stuff about Marty. So they go to a demon bar. The bartender looks human but has a crazy snake tongue. They're going to the back room to play cards, and Buffy just grabs a whole bottle of booze from the bar and takes it with her. I think she drinks most of it. She should maybe be dead. She's like a little stumbly by the end of this. But she, I mean, to be fair, she's a slayer. She could probably... Can she handle more? I mean, she was going to eat that whole bucket of chicken by herself, so maybe she can consume. <laughs> There's a variety of demons sitting around a card table. One of them doesn't want Spike to join because he's a demon killer, but Spike kind of just tosses him out of there. Now, Spike's being a bit of a Logan. Yeah, watch me play <laughs> cat cards. Buffy thought the two of them were going to, like, hang out, and now he's having a poker party? Spike explains that you can't just ask these guys for info or beat them up, but they're going to, like, chit-chat while they play cards. This does not happen. We don't see that. They play cards, not for money, for kittens. They <laughs> ante up, each putting a kitten into a basket. It's kind of funny how casual they are with these cats. Yeah. Spike's like, all right, who's going to advance me a tiny tabby? <laughs> that's funny because, like, the idea of, like, a tab. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's kind of funny. Buffy's just drinking this whole time. Spike ends up winning, and it's just piling a ton of kittens into a basket. <laughs> they all accuse him of cheating. Spike's like, I cheat? That guy's got x-ray vision. He's like, well, I'm not using it. <laughs> yeah, and Clem's got a card in his fat folds. Yeah. Or whoever they that don't guy name is. him Clem. Brian keeps yeah. calling him Clem. Like, I think that's I read that somewhere. So I now know we'll see this guy again. No way Brian's remembering anybody's name unless they're in like at least six episodes. <laughs> if you didn't know that fact about me, you skipped all of the first season of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> What's Suki's husband's name? Jackson. Oh, we've come so far. Yeah. Suki is her friend, right? <laughs> and what's the actress's name? Melissa. McCarthy? Yay! Oh my god, thank god. It seems like they're not just gonna let Spike get away without a fight. Even though he, I guess, won. They want the kittens back. He's like, great, me and Buffy will fight you. She's like, no, I'll beat them up for information, but not to defend your rights to gamble for kittens. Which, by the way, is a stupid currency. And Armfold says, they're delicious. (laughs) So they do eat them. Spike's like, come on, Buffy, you could use a fight. She's like, nope. She frees the kittens and storms out. They all try to grab kittens. It's just so funny they're dealing with kittens. Yeah. Spike goes after Buffy. She rants to him about how tonight ended up sucking and everything in her life sucks. And the only person she can stand to be around is a neutered vampire who cheats at kitten poker. He's like, oh, you saw the cheating then? (laughs) He did cheat. They all did. The trio is on their way to mess with Buffy some more. Fighting over who the best James Bond was. I don't know a lot about this, so their opinions were lost on me. Do you have an opinion? I mean, they all have their advantages. They all have things that aren't great about them. 
I would I grew up thinking Roger Moore was the guy, but then I don't know. It's tough. I think it's whoever you saw first is going to be your favorite. I think Roger Moore was pretty good. Timothy Dalton's not bad either. Pierce Brownson's not bad. So you're not Team Warren. No. The thing about Roger Moore, real quick though, is that like he was in the role for way too long. The last one he was in, if I'm right, I think is a, a View to a Kill, which is a weird title. A View to a Kill. He's just too old to be James Bond. He's just. <laughs> I'm like, there's no, you're not fighting anybody, buddy. You're done. I'm sorry. New actor, please. That's it. Well, Spike has gone after Buffy. He bumps into her on the street where she's just like stopped staring at the trio's van, which she recognizes from the construction site. Inside, they're all still fighting about James Bond. It briefly turns physical, but Jonathan notices Buffy approaching the van on the cameras. He grabs his magic bone and quickly quickly turns himself into a big red like wrestler demon with wings. It's not immediately clear that it is Jonathan, but I figured it was by the way he's talking. It doesn't seem like a real demon. Buffy tries to punch him, but she's drunk and bad at it. She ends up landing a kick in his stomach, but she falls over backwards. Fun fact, Jonathan looks big in this form, but he's not at all tough or strong. So, like, holding back tears, he says, I am well struck. (laughs) I call on the misty portal to my demon dimension where I'll lay my head and gently die. And he just, like, drops a smoke bomb and kind of just runs back to the van. But <laughs> Buffy and Bike are wasted, so they didn't notice he ran away. Think he blew up? Well, he probably went to his demon dimension. Jonathan runs up to the van. He's like, she hurt me all over. <laughs> she hit him one time. <laughs> She's a slayer, man. Yeah. And then he just says, let the spell be ended, and turns back to himself wearing giant shorts. Not sure the clothing makes sense. Like, was the demon wearing Jonathan clothes when he turned, and then he put the shorts on in the van (laughs) before heading out there? That was a separate spell to get them shorts. Also, they've done a spell like this before, right? Was it the Xander twin episode? Where, to undo it, Willow just said, like, spell. Let the spell be ended, yeah. Yeah. Warren's like, guys, we took on the Slayer. We got all kinds of stats in the computer on her now. Speed, strength, reaction time. We tested her. We faced her. We survived. We did good. And they did discover free cable porn. So. Nice. Great day for them. Back at Buffy's house, Giles hands her a glass of water after she's finished barfing. What do you want to do with your life? (laughs) (laughs) So I was thinking we could talk about some serious stuff right now. She collapses onto her bedroom floor and tells Giles she's really been screwing up. He's like, oh, come on. You were being tested, and in general, you're maybe pushing yourself too hard with this job and money stuff. She's like, sure, that sounds good in theory, but Mama's got bills, honey. And Giles says maybe there's something he can do about that. He hands her a check. We don't see how much, but it seems like enough to solve all her problems. She definitely seems grateful, but it did seem like she should have been a little more like, are you sure? Do you have a job? Like, there's no talk of whether it's a loan or not. I mean, I'm torn. On the one hand, it's like, I've been do- I've been saving the world for free, and you've been getting paid to, like, give me advice. That's true. So, like, he is getting paid, and she's not. So, like, uh, I appreciate this, but, like, I deserve this money. <laughs> she tells him this is a little like having her mom back. And he's like, in this scenario, I am your mother. And she says, want to be my shiftless absentee father? And then he pitches some sort of rakish uncle. Why are we dancing around this? He's your dad. You both know it. We all know it. Let's just label it. You can call him dad. It's fine. Everyone wants it. It was actually weird because shiftless absentee father. Is she describing her actual dad? Yeah, I think that was the thing. She should have said, do you want to replace my shiftless absentee father? Not want to be my shiftless absentee father. Sure. It doesn't really make sense. She thanks him again. He helps her up so she can go show Don the money. 
But before she leaves the room, she turns and tells him, knowing he's always going to be there makes her feel safe, which is so, so sweet. But after she leaves, he's definitely got a look on his face like, ooh, baby girl. One pocket had a check. The other one's got a plane ticket in it. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'll stick around, sing some songs with you, but then I got to (laughs) go. And that's the episode. Yeah. Brian, was it a good one? I don't know that it was a good one, but it was funny. Yeah. I really loved the magic shop scene. Yeah. I thought that was fun. Yeah. And like the kitten stuff was fun mm-hmm. and drunk Buffy was fun. But it for me, like I the trio, it's just like there is some like bits from the trio that are funny and cute, but like I just don't like them. Yeah. It's just like this like weird like trio of incels like going after this powerful woman. It's like an interesting metaphor, but like for me, it wasn't that fun to watch. Like you said, the, the mummy hand stuff was all very fun and there was funny stuff, but I, I don't know. There was no emotional thing in this episode that really hooked me either. I mean, the Giles stuff was nice at the end. I agree. Sure. Yeah. I didn't like the construction stuff. I agree. All that was bad. The whooshing time lapse thing was fine, but like. There's some stuff unexplained there. It wasn't funny, and it was also, like, it's problematic, like, as far as, like, how does this make sense? Yeah. I think, like, not having Tara there maybe would have fixed it, because I'm like, what? Tara just seems like an asshole right now. Yeah. Are her and Tara fighting? We don't see <laughs> Tara anymore. We do get to some definition of the powers of the trio. Like, we talked about this. Like, Warren can do technology stuff. Andrew can, like, summon demons. With his flute? Yep. Can anyone play that flute? I guess. I don't know. And Jonathan can cast spells. Jonathan had cast a spell in Superstar, but like apparently he's been working on spells ever since. Yeah, he seems pretty good at spells. Yeah, him and Willow should team up. Sure. I wonder what Willow's opinions on James Bond are. <laughs> That's why they don't work together, because for her opinions. She's a Lazar Lazarby fucking defender. I think that's the guy's name. There's a guy that did like two movies and he sucked, man. But overall, I would say, I'm not going to say I hate this episode because I don't, but like it, it's not one that I love. With all that being said, which episode do you think was better? Gilmore Girls. What? <laughs> yeah, Gilmore Girls. It was pretty clear. It was such a good Gilmore Girls episode. All the drama at the USO fundraiser was so good, so juicy, been waiting for this. And Paris was like so well written in this episode, so funny. It was all very, very good. All the writing and acting was great in that episode. And like I said, it was like a well-designed episode. Like, it was pretty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as much as I think the fight between Lorelai and Luke, although it may go somewhere, was sort of like a nothing fight in this episode, it was so minor that who cares? <laughs> like, the rest of the episode was great. I didn't hate Buffy, but I, there were parts of it I really didn't like. I think it was just a little more messy. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a clear Gilmore winner this time. Well, guys, if you want to watch along next week, we'll be watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer Season 6, Episode 6, all the way. It's the Buffy Halloween episode. As well as Gilmore Girls Season 6, Episode 6, Welcome to the Dollhouse. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the episodes discussed in this podcast. Do you think Lorelai should ask Luke if he would like her to do some of his stuff? Which James Bond is your favorite? What do you think Richard was thinking when he was looking at Rory on stage? What was Tara seeing when Buffy was going through all that? Do you think Mitchum is evil, evil? Let us know. You can reach out by following us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at Gilmore Slayer, where we post interactive questions, comedy sketches based on each episode, and more. Or you can send us an email at brianandstacyreviews at gmail.com. That's Brian with a Y and Stacy with an EY. For more bonus content, find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash brianandstacy, where we post weekly video recaps of Angel, host monthly live stream watch parties, post monthly podcast outtakes, and share early extended episode previews. And shout out to our new Patreon subscriber, Wendy Connolly. Thank you.
For more non-podcast content, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, also called Brian and Stacy. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so by making a donation of your choosing via the link found at the bottom of our episode description or in our social media bios. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and we'll give you a shout-out in an upcoming podcast. It really helps people find us. You know what? Hmm. You crush that girl. You crush that girl. You crush that girl. You crush that girl. Hey, mommy hand, go crush that girl. If you don't get this, you didn't listen to any of the episodes. You just went straight to this part, which is a weird way to listen to the podcast. Yeah, you missed a lot. Yeah, why are you here? Go listen to the podcast. You weirdo who likes the end song. I only listened to the last two seconds. (laughs) Well, thank you for tuning in, dude. (laughs) Okay, thanks, dude.